Hello, I'm Christina Chant. Hi, Christina. I'm David Ball. And welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. Yeah, this is a podcast of the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and treatment. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The reach of this work touches on all 198 First Nations in BC. I'm a clinician with expertise in primary care, public health, mental health, and substance use. I'm also the Director of Education and Clinical Activities here at the BC Centre on Substance Use. And I'm a journalist with about a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. So this is a podcast for healthcare providers, and we're focused on issues here in British Columbia. And we'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Families, including chosen families, can be an extremely valuable resource in a person's substance use care journey, but they are often overlooked in substance use care planning. Family can definitely play a big role in someone's healthcare journey when it comes to things like navigating the healthcare system, advocating for resources, and providing support. Would you say there are additional challenges to consider when supporting a family member with a substance use disorder, Christina? Absolutely. There are so many considerations when it comes to involving family. A few that come to mind are family dynamics, which are often complex to begin with, and there can also be biases around substance use and issues of consent and autonomy. Often, we frame the conversation about the role family members play in substance use care around a loved one who has passed away. Without taking away from this incredibly important perspective, it is also important to hear from families who are either in the early stages of learning how to navigate the system, or folks who've been supporting family for a long time and may be experiencing caregiver burnout. There is so much potential there to improve the way we care for people with substance use disorders and their families. That's so important. Well, today's episode, we really want to focus on how care providers can better leverage the support from family members to enhance substance use care, keeping in mind those complexities you just mentioned. For today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Christina and Christina's sister, Lauren Chant. Both are registered nurses and have supported family members who use substances in accessing healthcare. Lauren has a decade of experience working in inner city primary care. Christina and Lauren come with many years of experience advocating and navigating through health systems. So the two of you are sisters, and I would love for you to tell us a bit about your family dynamics and the relationships you had growing up and today. Can we start there? Sure. Thank you, David. Yeah, I'm Christina, and we basically grew up in Port Coquitlam. There's four sisters, and so I'm the oldest, and, and Lauren, you can introduce yourself if you'd like. I am Lauren. I'm the second sister. <laughs> Christina's the oldest. And then we have a third sister, Naomi, and our youngest sister, Emily, And in terms of dynamic, we grew up in a pretty dynamic household with both parents who have mental illness. And, and I would say for myself, like it wasn't until I was 14, probably that I started to notice that my parents were not so much like other parents. It's around the time my dad just started to change a lot in his behavior and that I guess before diving into the health related things with my parents, I would say like in our house with the type of dynamic between our sisters is we 
I think thought we were having like a pretty normal childhood until my dad became quite sick. And, and that happened when he lost his job and he had tried working in other jobs, but I think he lost a lot of confidence in his kind of self-identity when he was no longer working as a bank manager and being the primary care provider or primary provider in our family. My dad had pretty severe schizoaffective disorder or some variation on that alongside was using substances and was in and out of recovery during my teenhood. And it became a very weird dynamic where my sisters would not really come to me for what you would normally talk about of dating or turmoil in school, but it, I think they were more concerned about me um, getting mad at them <laughs> for doing certain things. I became a bit of a parentified child. Yeah, as the middle child and then Naomi being the other middle child, we were definitely bonded as well in a special way and looking to Christina often for guidance and the dynamic actually it's evolved over time but it's always been we've been super just bonded as like a united front and as we get older it just seems to get stronger it's been a really interesting ride as the four of us have all been through the same thing but then experience it and navigate it in very different but complementary like synergistic ways and that's actually been probably one of the privileges of having such a chaotic, unstable, unpredictable childhood. I mean, in the all of the seasons of Addiction Practice pod, podcast, we've never had a co-host sibling on before, but this is such a kind of rare and special opportunity to get an insight into how substance use might play into a family dynamic from two people within that family. Maybe, Lauren, could you talk a little bit about how substance use played into these dynamics around growing up? Yeah, it was pretty known that there was substance use happening, although it wasn't explicitly stated to us as children. Like we knew our father was using substances and there was no, no one, none of us actually looked down upon our father for that. It was just understood like dad's been through a lot and he's coping the best that he can. And then to, for us, we know we explored substances as teens do and experimenting and having fun and partying and Christine and I would hang out together as youth and there would be substance use happening there in the form of usually like drinking and we're like oh that's normal but it was never like demonized as that may happen in some family structures as well where you're like oh dad had this has this terrible substance problem so we none of us are going to condone or encourage any sort of substance use it was never that was never our way of conceptualizing what happened to dad. As we get older, we also notice that Naomi was using substances as well. And we just did our best to support her. We never yeah, made her feel bad or stigmatize her substance use at all. Like, I think that like we, in thinking about as children or teens, seeing our dad trying to get help is that we did experience and see a lot of the stigma from other people and felt that and that caused a lot of conflict because like my dad again big personality we I think really admired him and felt a lot of love from him and to have someone you love be characterized as someone that you don't think they are it just caused a lot of conflict of just being like you don't know who he is leave him alone <laughs> and also as I got older I, I started nursing when I was 18 
he was in the hospital in psychiatric care and, and I was there to join a care conference and the psychiatrist discharged him without telling me and didn't tell the forensic nurse who was also attached to his care. And he ended up dying a month later from a drug overdose. And we just had so desperately tried to be involved to the degree that we could, but it always felt like we're pushing up a boulder. So I think that has affected a lot of how we show up for Naomi and and what we ask of Naomi and ask of the system and caring for her too. Of We've had instances where people, again, would be like, what would your sisters, they would say to Naomi, what would your sisters think if you use drugs again? And we'd like, we can answer that. We'd say, we love you. Please talk to us about it. We want you to be safe. I'm sorry for your loss at that age. And also I'm hearing kind of some incredible insights in a way of as children, you had already learned what a lot of people are realizing are best practices now in treatment. Things like understanding coping skills in response to traumatic events, understanding the need for an alliance and trust building and eliminating stigma. So in a way, you are kind of ahead of the curve. From your experience, I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about some of the biases you may have seen when involving family members in substance use care? I'm talking both in your personal lives, but also professionally, since you work in this field. Very early on as a nurse, you're socialized to be annoyed by family. (laughs) You really are. Like I remember working residential care and there was this amazing daughter of one of our patients and she was there all the time. And there was always grumbling about, oh no, she's here. She's going to come and talk to us. She's going to complain. She's always complaining that her dad's not getting enough. And that stuff seeps in. It's there. And I get it. Like when you're working a really busy day, you're short-staffed, you don't have what you need, you know morally what is the right thing to do, but you're not always enabled by the system to do that because you have such a big patient load. I think, again, Laura and I as nurses both know that. (laughs) You know that and like you can anticipate it, but you also see how the system responds to the squeaky wheel and the squeaky wheel gets a grease. And, And so there's a bit of a tension there where I'm like, if I don't show up, I'm worried that my sister might die. I've felt personally judged by staff as well. I think that there's assumptions that go on both sides. Some Sometimes you feel like the staff are making assumptions about you or what, how are you quote unquote supporting your sister when that maybe doesn't align with what the clinician or whomever thinks is best for Naomi or dad or whoever. And it really is challenging because I do see it from their perspective as well. But then this, there's this tension between knowing as a nurse and knowing how the system operates, as well as the perspective of the family member when you are, it's impossible not to make criticisms about the care because you're just so focused on knowing and wanting to see the best for your family. It's, it sounds like some of the issues that people might want to consider who are clinicians might include being open to hearing people, but also communicating sensitively. Is there yeah. anything, Lauren, that you think might help providers to overcome any biases or stigma in how they deal with families that are advocating like you discussed or wanting to be involved? Just engaging more with family members. I think there is maybe some trepidation or apprehension in engaging with family because we have that power dynamic between the clinician and the family. And I really think that there is this, we know best 
kind of idea, even though maybe it not be at the forefront of one's mind and thinking, oh, I am having this unconscious bias, though, that I know best because I'm the clinician and I've gone to school. And what does the family know? And the family doesn't know how the system works. And that makes it all the more complicated <laughs> on both sides. So yeah, it's it's really challenging for clinicians maybe to not understand unless they maybe have personal experience navigating the system themselves or being a patient. And when I'm providing education as a nurse educator, I often bring that to the forefront and say, do you have any experience being a patient? Do you know what that feels like to be in that vulnerable circumstance? Do you have a family member who've maybe been in that circumstance? And say, it's a really disempowering place to be. And really trying to think about that and trying to put yourself in that situation. So maybe you can see from a different perspective, because I can tell you a lot of clinicians have never been a patient. And for them to actually think about that, it's, it's quite powerful. You can see the shift in how people are thinking about the content that we're trying to deliver. Christina, I wanted to ask you a question about for individuals who are not looking to engage in treatment at the moment for substance use, how do you imagine that it's the best way to engage a family members and supporting them in that care journey? It's mm, a really good question. It's a hard one too. We had a recent example, like personal example last year, our sister actually wanted to go off OAT and she'd been on opioid therapy for 10 years, different kinds. And recently was on supplicate, which was working, but there was some challenges in her care that led to some misses. And she just decided, I'm fine. I don't need to be on it anymore. And as you can imagine, that was terrifying for us. And she felt she was ready. We disagreed. She was not stable, but the care provider did take her off, which we disagreed with and shared our concerns with the team about that. And unfortunately, she's still not on OAT. And so I think as family working within the system, it's really important to feel as a family, you're still conveying your concerns to your family members so you feel heard too, right? And I think that's one thing with Naomi and we wish she could be here chatting with us. She decided not to be on this podcast with us today, but we're really honest. That's a, one of the best, I think, strengths of our relationship as sisters is that we're very honest about how we feel and why we share that. And some of the things I've said to her before being like, look, like we may disagree, but I'm always honest with you. And the fact that we disagree reflects that I'm being honest and I ask that you be honest to me about how things land with you. And that way too, she feels like she has control in the situation and that I'm not trying to do something without her consent because she's had so many situations where her consent's been violated and it's really important that where she can, she's making those choices and being in control. It's really insight, insightful for clinicians to hear those some of those messages that you've adopted and trying to practice around harm reduction and sort of accountability and vulnerability. How would you engage families that maybe don't share the same harm reduction principles that you have that I know that families can be all over the place? Is there a way to communicate to them that'll maintain the harm reduction principles without everyone necessarily sharing them, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's complex, right? Because there's no, there's unfortunately no fix all to eliminating the risk for people, I think, who have addiction from a possible 
like toxic drug death. And so I think if I were talking to someone, I just start off just being like, this is really hard. (laughs) It's really hard and you can't control your loved ones. You can't control the outcomes of what's going to happen. And I think the most important thing to start with is about that connection to the person is that they're going to be the hardest on themselves always. And so you conveying love and trust is really important. You conveying how you feel is really important and setting boundaries is really important. And I share all of that before talking about harm reduction, because I think sometimes, and I had these feelings sometimes when I was younger of being like, to my dad, of being like, why don't you stop using? Don't you love us? And it's like, it's not about me. I My dad loved us very much, but he had a ton of pain. There was horrible things that happened in his childhood. And if he had access to like an overdose prevention space when he was using, maybe he wouldn't have died. And so you try to understand what's going on in that person's life and and then offer ways to mitigate the risk. And these are often evidence-based approaches. And I think I would just share with what I would just say is be curious with the family and and try to understand what they're what's going on. So I think there's a piece for healthcare providers to think about how they can cultivate trust and invite conversations with family to also help comp- like combat some of the misinformation that's also out there about not only harm reduction but substance use health and treatment in general because things have advanced a lot and I think some healthcare providers forget that these moral theories around substance use are still so endemic for some of us who've worked in the field for so long. And a lot of that needs to be unpacked and addressed also. So it's not, again, like a moral failing or you're not a bad family if you support your family member who uses drugs. And one other thing I would say, too, is really about addressing this idea of rock bottom, because that has been a thing that has been said for a long time. People have to reach rock bottom before they can get tra- treatment. But the reality is that rock bottom is just death for people now when they relapse and that there's not some magical spot where they're finally going to be like, oh, no, I need to get help. It's like people should be offered help at every juncture and respected also in their choice about how they engage. But it's never to give up on people that you always offer hope and connection and love to the folks around you, your friends, your family, whomever's struggling. That's really interesting. I'm hearing a lot of sort of stuff in there about being patient focused and really focusing on what is the goal of this care with the people rather than coming in with a moral principle or a particular framework. And kind of that helps build the same page. Like we're here for that patient's well-being, but also for the family's well-being, expand that circle a bit to think if this is impacting them as well. I'm wondering, Lauren, can I ask you about how much families take on physically and mentally supporting a loved one through substance use? And how do you approach taking care of yourself while supporting a family member with substance use disorder? Oftentimes, I find myself leaning on Christina and Emily and sometimes my mom quite a bit because they know exactly what, what I've been through. And they've also seen me from just being a child to into a full-grown adult. They've been along for the ride with me and seen me in some like really difficult circumstances, get through some pretty difficult mental health challenges myself. I know how it can go. I've seen how people can die from their mental illness. 
And it's really scary. And I remember being a teen and just committing to myself. I'm like, when I get out of this place, when I get out of this home, I'm going to get into therapy and I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to be happy. And I always just believed that. Like I, I went into counseling right after my dad died and really focused on trying to be a healthy functioning adult as best I could because I knew that my parents gave me the skills and abilities to do that. I knew I had privileges and I was going to definitely take advantage of them and went straight into nursing and got a career. And now I'm in my 30s and I'm like, I've achieved everything I've ever wanted to achieve, including pretty good mental health and physical health. And really focusing on taking care of myself because I know that if I do not, I can't show up for my family. I can't show up for my partner, my friends, and really prioritizing that because I know that it literally can be life and death. Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. That's a lot to carry, but also such a, gives you so much purpose and impact, I think. And I thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. It's, I'm not ashamed to share anything about my mental health journey. In fact, I I wear it as a badge of honor. I'm like, I've survived. (laughs) I've lived to tell the tale. (laughs) And I think we need to really value and honor that in people because we're losing people in their prime as well. And I also communicate to, to my friends. I'm like, you're in the highest risk category right now. And I'm like, please listen to me and be safe. And I'm like, I want you around. We need people to be able to mentor and be elders to people who have these really difficult experiences, health conditions as well. I think it's really good that you mentioned that too, because I think for families and people who use drugs and people who support their family who use that, there's a lot of social shame that gets thrusted upon you that people then don't talk about their substance use or they don't talk about with their family or If you're a parent or a loved one of someone, you might feel like you can't because you're worried that you're going to be judged. And I think that's something that has been really important for us, like in our coping as kids and then as adults of not taking that on and really resisting it. I just think as much as possible, like it's like the more you talk about what's happening in your family to you or with your loved one in safe spaces, like you can let go of that shame and you can just own that I love this person and it's really hard and or I'm that you be like I'm that person who's using and it's really hard but like it's shame kills people and it also fosters poor mental health it fosters a lot of pain and I've been really lucky to have a just loving network of friends and coworkers and people that I just have always been supportive when I've said things are just really hard and I don't know what's going on or I need help. I need help and try to have periods of fun and just take breaks and do nice things for yourself because the system is so challenging. And sometimes it can feel, yeah, just like insurmountable trying to push, keep pushing up that boulder, trying to make things better and keep the people around you alive. I wanted to ask you about that kind of advocacy aspect. When people are actually advocating for loved ones or supporting loved ones, Do you have any thoughts about how they can communicate with health professionals about their own needs, about taking care of themselves? Because often people are pushing for better treatment or more access to things, but there's the other piece, which is 
taking care of themselves, the boundaries they need, the support they need. Yeah, it's tough. If you have friends who are healthcare providers, I would suggest drawing on them. Part of it, what has been effective for us is knowing what's important to the clinicians that you're working with and trying to cater your message to them. I think people who don't have knowledge about the health system are at a, a clear disadvantage because you won't understand the constraints that health professionals are working under and you might not know what the best practices are as well and like what people are entitled to as patients and also as family so i think if you have the capacity to have someone who has that experience or ask those questions when you engage of being like what are my rights as a family what are my rights as a patient what can i expect when my family is admitted here what would be the ideal situation because i also think sometimes there's because of burnout and like people rushing, there's a pragmatism that can happen where people are just like, this is their sixth time coming in here. So we're just going to let them be discharged. And that could be the time that things change for that person. I just very much believe in like, you can never stop hoping and pushing and supporting like the care of your loved ones in those situations. But I totally understand people getting burnt out and pulling away and taking breaks and needing to do that. So I think always hold the healthcare providers to account. Like it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And regardless of what they share, you're entitled to ask for a second opinion. You're entitled to ask the rationale about the decision making and about what medications are on and what's the evidence to support this decision here. Those are really important to ask because we know that the translation of best practices across the board is not the same. It's not the best in a lot of places. There's a lot of variance in how people practice. And yeah, I think that it's really about getting as much information as you can and asking people to give you that time and not let them brush you aside, which does happen. From a clinical perspective, uh, as health providers, how can they support families on their journey with their loved one through substance use care. When my dad passed away, we were given a call from Lionsgate Hospital and he was like intubated on life support. And when we got there, it was just me and my sisters. And one of the most important things the nurses did there was the nurse who was assigned to his care just gave the space for us to have emotions, which I know sounds very basic, but she was so supportive and so engaged and listened and held space for our sadness in, in that circumstance. There are instances where people are alive and things are horrible and feel really bad. And you just need somebody to bear witness to that instead of making you feel like you're some annoying fly on the wall, like just pestering. Because it's like the weight of trying to roll that boulder up the hill, which is really being like, I'm trying to keep my family alive. I'm trying to keep myself alive. I'm trying to exist in this vast hellscape of the planet and having someone bear witness to that can just lift that burden briefly and feel really good. So that's what I would emphasize there. Thank you both so much for sharing all this. And there's so many insights, I think, for families, for care providers, for I think all of us in this. I appreciate all of the personal stories and all the professional stories today. I've learned a lot. And that was Lauren Chant, a registered nurse with over a decade of experience working in inner city primary care, and her sister Christina Chant, our clinical co-host for this episode. On today's episode, we've heard from a clinician perspective, as well as a personal one, about the role that families can play in substance use care. Christina, I wonder if you could share some of the clinical pearls or lessons that you took from today's episode. Thank you, David. 
Family members, chosen and biological, often play an important role in providing care to their loved ones. They can provide important historical and present-day collateral uh, regarding the client's care, and often can be a partner with clinicians on supporting clients through their healthcare journey. As a clinician, it's important to provide space for family members to voice their concerns, ask questions, and provide support to help mitigate the challenges of supporting family through the healthcare system. Where possible, support the family through creating a safe space for this exchange to occur. Recognize that you share a common goal of keeping their loved one alive, engaged in healthcare, and supporting them with their health goals. Another pearl is to understand that family members often take on a lot of physical and emotional labor in order to support their loved ones. Family often have had similar challenges as the clients you care for. Where possible, support the family to ensure that they are not taking on responsibilities that can and should be handled by a clinician or other support worker. This can involve connecting family members to relevant supports and services. And lastly, to navigate concerns around confidentiality and consent, check in with your clients about how much information can be shared with their family members. Also, check in with family about how much capacity they have to be involved in their family's care. And stay informed about the rights of family members and check in with them regularly about what they need to feel supported. Thank you to our guests today, Lauren and Christina Chan. If you're interested in learning more about how to engage family members in your patient's clinical care journey, you can find some additional resources in the show notes. There you can also find instructions for claiming CME self-learning credits. Help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in our show notes. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. And it was made possible through a financial contribution from Doctors of BC with support from BC's Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions and founding support from Health Canada. The views expressed here in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. I'm Christina Chant. And I'm David Ball. Thank you all so much for listening.